I'm very glad to be joined by economics professor at Brown University, who's also a prominent social critic, Professor Glenn Lowry. Thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Brianna. So I always love to speak to heterodox voices across the political spectrum, particularly those that make it clear that there is not one kind of monolithic Black voice. And as a Black progressive, I have also often been, um, I've also, let's say, had my Blackness attacked (laughs) because of my political beliefs, and I suspect that you are in a similar camp. Uh, But we both are in the position of making critiques from kind of outside the mainstream school of thought um, from different directions. So for those who aren't so familiar with your work, would you mind giving kind of a brief synopsis of your critique of kind of uh, the liberal approach to explaining race and racial dynamics in America? Yeah, well, you know, I've been around for so long and I've written so many things. It's a question of which Glenn Lowry do we want to (laughs) examine here? But let me go with the current version. So I think the anti-racism rhetoric and agitation is uh, barking up the wrong tree. Hmm. Uh, It's not that I don't think there's racism. I know there's racism. But it's that I think the development of the capacities of African-American people to realize our full human potential is the fundamental challenge. And I've uh, put this in uh, recent writing uh, in terms of the phrase, the bias narrative versus the development narrative. So the bias narrative is white supremacy, white privilege, discrimination, racism, holding black people down. The development narrative is uh, we got to raise our children. We got to educate them. We need to get busy taking advantage of what opportunities exist. Uh, there's too much crime and violence. Our families are in disarray. Uh, the achievement gap is only partly about the institution. It's a lot to do with the values and behaviors in our community. Let's take responsibility for ourselves. Nobody is coming to save us. Now, that's a rhetoric that is not unfamiliar to people who know something about Black American history. But I think here in the 21st century, with the realities on the ground being what they are, that it's time to revive that kind of rhetoric or to reiterate it, uh, especially as I see so much energy going into what I think is a kind of windmill tilt. Uh, People are, they're angry and they're banging their fists against fate. I mean, uh, microaggressions, I mean, Uh, They want to take down statues, and I'm not against the taking down of statues. It's just that I think it's kind of like begging the question of what really are the obstacles in uh, front of uh, preventing African-Americans from, you know, uh, achieving a more effective position within the society. Mm. What's so interesting about that is I think I have in many ways similar critiques where I remember when statue discourse was in full swing, I remember just, you know, asking the question on my first podcast uh, way back when, if we care about people remembering history, is there a way that we can better contextualize statues, put up additional statues, change plaques, reframe them in a way that doesn't seem quite so much like historical erasure? Are there certain figures that are so abhorrent that it's worth taking them down? As are there some statues that are so laudatory in their aesthetic that there's no way to recontextualize them in a way that makes sense in a contemporary society. But that on the whole, the whole discourse was kind of missing the forest for the for the trees of the more substantive conversations about racial inequity. And it became a flashpoint that in some ways was a distraction from a really important conversation that was ongoing about police brutality and the like. What's a little bit more difficult for me is this emphasis or the choice or decision to either emphasize some of these potentially cultural factors that contribute to, let's say, racial disparities versus some of the historical, political, legal, structural factors that are a focus. And where I would agree with you is that talking about microaggressions and the like, while at times useful, particularly in kind of an HR uh, context, um, are very far away from actually addressing any core root causes. But my focus would not be to say, let's talk more about interpersonal dynamics, some critique of Black family life, et cetera, but to focus instead on remedying those basic structural inequities um, like broad economic disparities, 
poor educational opportunities for huge swaths of the American public, um, housing inequities and on and on and on down the line, healthcare inequities and on down the line. What do you make of that? So there's a substantial ground of overlap there in the uh, let's not waste our time on um, relatively superficial and symbolic uh, jousting matches about racial etiquette. Let's focus on fundamentals. As between you and me, there's a fair amount of common ground there. There's a big difference, however, and I respect uh, the position that you just sketched uh, in wanting to look at material conditions, the economy, the nature of the welfare state, the, so, uh, you know, the safety net, and uh, the things that we can achieve through legislation and that the government can do in preference to talking about character, values, norms, morals, patterns of behavior in our community. Uh, and I, as I say, respect, although don't, dis don't agree, and I don't want to impute a position to you that you don't hold, but many people who take your point of view about sticking to our knitting and let's get the social contract right, think that the behavioral maladies are caused by the material condition. So violence, okay? We got high homicide rates. We got terrible problems in many cities, as I'm sure you know. And the idea is, well, if we had better jobs, if we had universal health care, we had a $15 minimum wage, if we had a decent society, uh, more union power and things like that, and we, if we had, you know, then we wouldn't have it. And what I'm thinking is, here's somebody who takes a pistol and they extirpate a human life or they fire at random into a crowd. That's barbarity, excuse the word. It's a very strong word. That's awful human behavior. That should be condemned unequivocally. And if I find that behavior to be vastly overrepresented in my community, there's something within my community that is in need of healing. This is almost a spiritual argument. Now, you could say we don't have to choose between these two right. things. And I could go with you that far, and you and I might not agree about a $15 an hour minimum wage and all of that, but we could at least be talking about that. Um, but at least don't downplay my side of that equation. If I don't have to choose, then let me hear the one who wants the $15 minimum wage also decrying the despicable behavior of a relatively small number of vicious criminals, etc. You see how that language would go. I, I won't yeah. overdo it. Okay. So my issue is not with, I do think there are some people and the left has been having this conversation more broadly. And so I do think there are some people who are so uncomfortable with certain unflattering statistical realities that they do a sort of group propaganda in, in various ways, in various respects, right? Where they will at very least downplay certain statistical realities in favor of others because they have a political objective. And I agree with that political object objective on the whole, which is to say, let's advance the policy solutions that are going to address the concerns of that group, as opposed to what the right tends to do with those at on their face neutral statistics, which is to say these statistics are an excuse, our justification for withdrawing social support to those same groups. So it's not that I have any discomfort with, let's say, you know, acknowledging the gravity of someone who murders someone else or to take a life. But I think there's two things. One, I'm very conscious of the way that that would, that can be weaponized to achieve a political end that would exacerbate those harms. And two, I would quibble with the idea that there aren't enormous correlations with poverty, with geographic location, with the prevalence of lead in water, with upbringing in the presence of you know, um, financial stability of parents and working parents and the ability to have food in the house and people eating breakfast before they go to school and early childhood education and all of these things on down the line, uh, you know, uh, use of alcohol and cigarettes and pregnancy, all of these things have been shown to varying degrees to correlate with criminality and see much more ready explanations than cultural issues. And then to, even if that weren't true, I would say that Similar to the same reason that I get frustrated with liberals who say we have to culturally change the right, we have to eliminate racism before we do X, Y, and Z, 
I find the pro- the idea that we are going to culturally change any group, and, and that needs to be kind of like a first step to addressing these pretty grievous social harms, is kind of a fool's errand. Sure, I can sit here and kind of Bill Cosby t- style tell people yeah. to pull up their pants, and sure, I can tell white people to stop being racist, and I don't know what that's going to do. What I do know as a humanist is that, that there's people who are homeless, there are people who don't have health care, there are people who are food insecure, and that from a policy perspective, that's always my goal is to always to focus a public conversation on those things that we can actually address materially. Um, I, this is not the first time I've had this debate. Sure. <laughs> um, I think I should mention his name, Adoner Usmani, U-S-M-A-N-I. Uh, he's a sociologist. He teaches at Harvard. He's an assistant mm. professor of sociology and um, social theory at Harvard. And he and I have been debating exactly this. He's a man of the left and he, he worries a lot about mass incarceration issues. And he's, uh, I'm talking about Adana, but I'm going to address you, what you just said momentarily. He, he has been arguing that he thinks the new Jim Crow narrative, Michelle Alexander and company is overly simplistic. Uh, but he thinks at the end of the day that the, the root cause is the, the paucity of the American welfare state. It's, it's the fact that we have, uh, as a society, chosen, he thinks crime's a real problem. He thinks the rise in incarceration is largely a reaction against the rise of violent crime in the 1980s and after. But he thinks <clears throat> that what we did in response to the rise of violent crime was uh, to basically throw people away in the jails instead of addressing ourselves to, as it were, root causes. And I, I have a couple of responses to that. One is I think the evidence is less than compelling that throwing money at the root causes, whether it be the schools or whether it be various kinds of social services to indigent populations or whatnot, will deal with the problem of violent crime. That's, that's a, a kind of rhetoric that we've been hearing a lot of, but I, I don't know uh, if there really is good reason to believe that that's the case. I mean, you, you take the... Uh, children born out of wedlock in single parent homes and whatnot. Some people try to argue that it doesn't matter, that it's 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 an irrelevancy. And I, I can't help but think, and I believe there's evidence to this effect, that it's a very important impediment to the full development and flourishing of African-American youngsters, that there's so much instability in the interpersonal relations uh, within the social matrix that children are born and so forth. Now, we can fiddle around with the welfare policy all we want to, but we're not really reaching the behavioral basis of the problem if we're not prepared to address these questions of values. And who are we? We are not the white supremacists. We are the African-Americans who are most concerned about the well-being of our community. And there's a kind of dignity point here. There's, there's a kind of point that quite apart from policy, there's an issue of how you want to live in the world and, and what kind of people uh, we are, and the evocation of re- wealth uh, gap because of redlining and whatever, in the face of uh, the tragic uh, uh, way that many people's lives are, are working out, strikes me as, as morally inadequate. And so, again, I reiterate let's have the argument about policy, but let's not uh, uh, avoid addressing to our fellow African Americans the Shout questions about raise your children, keep your nose clean, live decently. Uh, there are right and wrong ways of being in the world, and you're not exhibiting what we want to value as an African-American community. Professor, I guess I would say that it's not that we haven't been having that conversation. I, I don't know that there is any time that I can recall where there hasn't been a, ro- a robust nucleus of conservative Black folks, perhaps best personified at this point by uh, Bill Cosby, for better or for worse, Please. that have always, that have always, you know, from you know, Booker T through Bill, who have always espoused some version of that. And that doesn't, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't deny, of course, there's an economic reality that having a, a two-parent household it infers an enormous amount of economic benefit, whatever the cultural benefits additionally may be, right? I think my entire generation is really smarting from the fact that the only that uh, apartments are in, in major cities at least are priced with the kind of expectation that it's going to be two people to a one bedroom. 
And if you're a single person in a housing market on one salary, it is extremely difficult to live anywhere near your work in an, in an urban center, for instance. So I don't, and, and, and when you say people have thrown money at the problem and it hasn't um, created an effect, I would say two things. I would say first that there are myriad instances where you can demonstrate significant effect by throwing money at the problem in a smart way. Um, but that typically speaking, the way money is thrown at the, the problem is exactly that, is thrown at the problem instead of addressing, actually addressing root causes. So busing kids instead of addressing the fact that redlining means that black people live in these historically deprived neighborhoods, don't get any equity out of their housing value, and as a consequence are victims of a wealth gap and a taxation base that means that their schools are dramatically underfunded, right? That the, the two things are one that I would kind of dispute the, the premise, but almost more importantly for the purpose of this conversation, even if you think that throwing money at a problem doesn't help, I am skeptical that just engaging in this, you know, do better black folks narrative has any demonstrated value at all. Okay. Uh, that's an unfriendly way of characterizing my position, but sure, but, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean not, to. No, it's not inaccurate. It, it's not inaccurate. That's that's that certainly is one way of putting it. And what I'd say is that first, not all poor communities exhibit the same extent and nature of pathology that we're seeing in many of the inner city communities that are of concern here. So I. I again, want to doubt whether or not uh, a simplistic uh, poverty or material deprivation that lies at the root of the problem is By not is all poor, communi poor communities, you mean non-black poor communities yeah. exhibit different yeah. behaviors. So yeah. in, is it your view that the different historical trajectories of various poor communities, namely that only one community in America has been subject to chattel slavery, isn't... Uh, isn't the militating factor there that it's cultural differences? No, it's a complicated. I, I only mean it to say, I only say it to mean that poverty, straight line, causal to behavioral pathology is refuted by the experience of other communities. I, I would argue, I would argue in favor of African-American exceptionalism on a, min, on a number of fronts and chattel slavery would be one of them. Um, I'm very friendly with uh, Orlando Patterson, the sociologist whose uh, work on slavery has led him, I mean, this is controversial, uh, to the view that uh, some of what we see in uh, family dynamics, and not only amongst African Americans, but also in other African diasporic communities, uh, can be traced back to the damaging effects of the intercession of masters' property claims over and against the natal organic connections within African American families. People could be sold off. They, planner might uh, violate a woman sexually or whatever. It's complicated. It's very complicated. I, I, I think it's very hard to know with certainty what all the effects of African-Americans' very specific historical experiences is, which is different from any of the immigrant groups, different in its way from the Native American experience. It's very hard to know with any degree of certainty, but I credit that the African-American experience is unique. But we're in the year 2021 now, and the 21st century is unfurling before our very eyes. The Chinese won't be held back. Technology is remaking everything. Uh, the, the, the economy is being transformed. Uh, the world is getting small. Uh, and, and I worry that we're on a trajectory where um, we're going to have within our great cities are very dynamic. They're being remade. Gentrification is a bugaboo, but gentrification is inevitable. The repurposing uh, of space is a dynamic that is going to happen. Um, that will that we're looking at a remnant of 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 the uh, descendants of the enslaved population, and I'm talking about the bottom quintile, the bottom twenty thirty percent in terms of economic and social position of African Americans, who are going to be uh, with us indefinitely. Uh, maybe it's merely a cry from my heart when I say, "Come on, we really have to address ourselves to the behavioral issues." Uh, but I, I, I guess what I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, 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 no. I've had enough time to say what I wanted to say. <laughs> well, I guess I just want to drill down on why it is, what kind of concretely, uh, what, what, what metrics you are looking at, what drives you to come to the conclusion 
that the but-for cause is cultural factors as opposed to any other number of very specific historical realities. So for example, I might point to the fact that the back in the 1960s when everyone was blaming kind of um, the lack of a two-parent family structure for Black people's uh, problems then, despite not having civil rights under the law, the Black marriage rates were what the Black marriage rates are now, right? And but all everybody marries less. Babies had out of wedlock are obviously inordinately more more common now, and yet the racial inequities maintain the 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 gap. The racial wealth gap is the same. The number of black kids who uh, attend uh, good schools as a statistical metric is the exact same as it was in the 1960s. And when there's an allusion to the fact that all this time has passed, you know, you know better than. I do. My mother says it, you know, with some frequency. You know, it's it's interesting to consider that when she was born in 1960, she did not have equal rights in this country. And she's a relatively young woman, right? So we were talking to someone who's also cites a relatively young woman, one generation out from having de jure discrimination in the country. And yet literally from the time that slaves were emancipated, there has been a robust effort to ask this question of why haven't they gotten their act together yet? And it would seem to me that the way to stop having to ask that question would be to actually commit to restorative, reparative measures that got to the root causes instead of doing what has always been done, which is this narrative that says people can individually kind of will themselves um, via good behavior out of like a 10 to 1 income gap or a neighborhood with bad schools or a job that won't pay a living wage. Okay. Um, I agree with your characterization of what some of the uh, uh, unfriendly rhetoric vis-a-vis the African-American experience has been. Why won't these people get their acts together? They've been saying that since Reconstruction. Right. Uh I agree with that. I don't think, though, that the history of uh, the actual experience of African-Americans coming out of slavery is is consistent with, I mean, is consistent with a dismissive back of the hand, black people ain't S-H-I-T kind of attitude. As a matter of fact, I think the generation, uh, the the two or three generations after emancipation uh, engaged in heroic and some of it was culturally very self-consciously focused developmental uh, effort. They taught themselves how to read. They built schools. They started businesses. They acquired skills. Um, I think if you looked at the history of the African-American family, you'd find that it's not until the middle of the 20th century that we begin to see the advent of uh, outsized uh, proportion of children born to unmarried women and single parenthood and teen pregnancy and stuff like that. I agree with the observation that Those forces are forces that are society-wide, the forces that have changed the nature of family life, that when we look at white families in the year 2021, we see a single parent rate that's not dissimilar to what we saw amongst black families a half century ago. Of course, the rate amongst black families now is, is vastly higher, but so we might argue that there's nothing specifically racial about those developments. Um, so, so I agree with that. Uh, but as I say, the, the clock is ticking here on uh, not all of Af- uh, not all of Black America, but on the uh, least advantaged uh, segments of our polity. And all I'm trying to argue for here is some sermons to be preached, some speeches to be given, some books to be written, and some lectures to be fashioned that call us to higher ground. In the same way that we Black Americans stop calling ourselves Negroes and coloreds. Stop uh, thinking that we had to uh, conk our hair or lighten our skin in order to have any sense of self-respect. Stop uh, looking at Amos and Andy and all that kind of crazy stuff and uh, that self-derogation in the same way that we redefined ourselves during the period of the 1960s and afterwards such that a a figure like uh, Malcolm X could become a historic and iconic uh, figure in African-American history. We can change the way that we live on the ground among ourselves, in our families, and with our children. I don't think, for example, and I'll stop, 
that uh, the the uh, the achievement gap in in uh, education, the test scores, and all that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with black people, in my opinion. There's no intrinsic inferiority of black people. When I see some groups rising and we not rising in the competition in the uh, educational sphere, I think we need to focus more on our development. Yes, we should get help doing it. We should have the resources. School should be improved. And we could talk about that because that's very controversial. I wouldn't let money be the obstacle to improving the schools for poor youngsters, all colors in this country. But I also think we need to be teaching our kids their numbers, their shapes, and their colors. We need to be reading to them. We need to be valorizing that kind of achievement just as much as we valorize other but, kinds of who, achievement. Professor Lever, we can I'm do both curious, of those things. Who is, who is not doing that? Because my experience is not that Black people don't value education. Quite to the contrary, polls indicate that Black Americans value education more than any other group when polled. If you look at who is the most educated group in America, it's currently black women. You know, so I just, I, I really am questioning some of the, the underlying premises here. I, it's not that I am in, if, if, if okay. there were- How many hours are people spending reading to their kids? How many hours of TV are being watched? So let's How many talk books about are there in the home? How much time do they spend at the museum or at the library? I, I, do you have answers to those questions? No, no, I, I, I don't have systematic and definitive answers. I could point you to this or that. Ronald Ferguson at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard has been surveying these populations and studying them. But this is controversial. Sandy Darity and his people down at Duke have a very different story about it. I've been reading this literature well, the singularity side, I, mean, I hope to have him on the program one day and I have my own critiques of, of, of him. But just you and I speaking here today, you know, it's, it feels to me a little risky to be, and I'm not trying to be overly combative, but it just seems very risky to accept the premise, the underlying premise here without some facts and figures, especially when, even if it were true, even if there are, are people who aren't, you know, the cause of poverty across the board and low educational attainment across the board, um, is because of parental behavior. One of the most impressive or compelling bits of research that I remember ever coming across was the fact that, yes, thrusting money into school district doesn't help student outcomes, but giving money to people's parents absolutely does because the reason so many parents aren't spending as much time reading to their kids, why it's easier to plop them in front of a TV, et cetera, is because they're working like dogs, working multiple jobs, have very little free time, have a difficulty accessing childcare, which is thousands of dollars a month and disincentivizes people from even entering the workforces in many cases because they don't earn enough to pay for childcare. Um, and that the st one study showed that just having food in the house and the time and wherewithal, like literally just the time a parent can have to make sure the kid has breakfast before going to school, dramatically increases outcomes. So when you see statistics like that, but even if the behavior is less than ideal, to attribute that to a lack of a cultural lack of desire to support one's child as opposed to some of these other factors, it seems to me to be a little premature. Uh, I wouldn't put that on people. You don't want to support your child. I, I might say, say, however, that in certain communities, the way people use their time and what they value in terms of uh, the allocation of that time could differ. Again, I would point to the fact that in the, the battle over the exam schools in New York City, where people are worried that the exam is excluding uh, communities of color, a lot of those Asian kids that are acing those exams are coming from families that are getting free and reduced price lunches at the school. They're qualifying for that because they're not economically well off. Uh, but you're right to challenge me and to uh, reprimand me, in effect, because I don't have chapter and verse here to cite for you. I'd have to go to my notes and I have to go and do some research to come back to uh, validate that certain so-and-so surveying books in the home, certain so-and-so surveying how many hours of watching TV, et cetera, et cetera, and cultural differences in that. That's uh, impressionistic reportage on my part, not social scientific uh, research. So um, call me, uh, call me back, and I'll get my my ducks in a row. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, I wanted, I did want to just bring that up because I was reading. Um, you shared with me, um, I think, a speech you'd recently given. Although it looks like maybe you published it also um, as an article. And you know, sometimes I do think that some of these kind of significant differences of perspective have to do with what facts we are kind of operating with, what underlying. 
um, kind of statistical research that we're operating with. And the same way, I, I, I'm very, I, I'm very eager, not eager is not the word, but I'm will, very willing and ready to push back against c- certain liberals who, let's say, want to downplay the role that class is playing in the context of a disparity and attribute it all to racism when it's usually, like most things in America, a very mixed bag. You know, I have a former colleague who makes the internet very angry on a weekly basis because he says that he cites things like statistics that show that, you know, zero instances of police violence per year happened in a neighborhood making less than where the average salary is less than $100,000 a year or over $100,000 a year. And that race is the biggest, you know, and, and, you know, both things can be true. Class can be a huge driver at the same time that racial disparities exist. So I, I'm willing to do this across the board. But, you know, when I do read, I was reading your case for black patriotism. That's what it was. And maybe this is a good place to shift gears. Okay. And in this piece, you make the case for why black people should see America and its exceptionalism as part of its own legacy. I don't mean to mischaracterize you. Do you want to put, sum up your argument in your own words? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm pushing back a little bit against the fashionable skeptical attitude about the American project. Uh, how did uh, Touré put it in a 4th of July piece that he had in the Griot? F-U-C-K, the 4th of July. Juneteenth is my holiday. Okay, and, and I'm, I'm basically just saying, you know, if we want to solve the problems of the African-American community in the 21st century, we're not going to get it done at the United Nations or in the world court. We're going to get it done in the cauldron of American politics. And we need our fellow Americans to get it done. And on the whole, while the story is a story that includes slavery and Jim Crow segregation and redlining and all the rest, the story is also a story that includes emancipation and the civil rights movement and all the rest. And if you look at it in terms of the long arc of history, of world history, uh, it's a little bit of a challenge to find another instance of an enslaved and dominated people who over the course of a century, a century and a half, are uh, empowered with full and nearly equal, I don't want to quibble, citizenship within within the polity. I mean, Slavery has been a commonplace of human culture. Emancipation is a relatively is a relatively rare experience. And although it has taken a long time, we are now in the 21st century. We have experienced the presidency of Barack Obama, not a panacea to be sure, but certainly an indication of a different political opportunity set than existed previously. We've got billionaires. We're the richest people of African descent on the planet, uh, we're, we're basically a very privileged people in a uh, situation that affords boundless opportunity. And there's nothing wrong with warts and all affirming the value of our membership in this political community rather than sitting petulantly off to the side with our fists balled up or our arms folded across our chest, tapping our toe and saying, America, I'm waiting for you to live up to your promise. What's what's so interesting about this is that I am really loath to agree with DeRay in any respect here. <laughs> However, the, the the problem for me, I, I'm not especially interested in what ultimately to me feels like a very performative kind of anti-patriotism. And for political reasons, those being my goal of of establishing a broad multiracial coalition of folks, many of whom I know are very deeply invested in America as a country and are very proud. I think it's it's natural to like where you're from. I, I, for all of its warts, I grew up overseas and spent half my childhood, you know, playing in the your country sucks my better country's better than your game with international kids. And you know, I, I understand that kind of intrinsic desire to defend one's home. But just like loving your parents and being committed to them and wanting to defend them doesn't mean that you have to be blind to their failings, especially at your own deficit, <laughs> according to your therapist. It doesn't mean that you have to be have blinders on into what America has really done. And, and you kind of, in this article, set up um, 
a sort of a binary. You say, you know, is America a venal, immoral, rapacious bandit society of plundering white supremacists founded in genocide and slavery and propelled by capitalist greed or a good country that affords boundless opportunity to all fortunate enough to enjoy the privileges and bear the responsibilities of citizenship? And you go on to say, of course, there is some warrant in the historical record for both sentiments, which I would agree with. It's a little A, it's a little B, it's an enormous diverse country with at this point a longish history. We're getting there, we're catching up. And there's, there's, there's going to be some things that we should all be proud of as a country and things that we should all condemn as a nation. But I'm curious about why the need to even tee up the, quote, weight of the evidence in one way or the other. Why does it matter um, if we can accept both truths as real? Why the, why the desire to get particularly Black people or any other group that has plenty of cause to want to draw attention to the country's failings, failings that up until the 1960s were largely papered over historically. Why the desire to push back against them and kind of what feels like what it feels like is force them to adopt the mainstream kind of whitewashed version of American exceptionalism. I said patriotism, not jingoism. And I I make a distinction between the two. So it's not one of these, you know, kind of. (laughs) reflexive, uh, my country, right or wrong, uh, die for the flag, wrap myself in the flag, Donald sure. Trump-esque. That, that's not where I'm coming from. My main motivation, you ask why, um, mm-hmm. is a fear that the consumption by elites uh, who are very privileged people who have microphones put in front of them and television cameras turned on when they enter the room of a very personal kind of... Uh, sentiment. They're alienated from their country. Uh, They're angry. Uh, They they have a particular ideological perspective. And they consume that in their expressions. Colin Kaepernick taking a knee is a classic case of this. Has a cost. Uh, The cost is in terms of political backlash and alienation of people whom we need and who are our natural allies and here I'm going to betray the influence of my Bernie Sanders supporting wife, Lawan, <laughs> who is constantly saying we need a working class coalition of progressives in order to get, you know, the policies with, you know, child care, yes. health care, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> even though I didn't vote for Bernie Sanders, I'm going to confess that I, I, I have a great deal of sympathy for that sentiment. And we can't get it done on our own. We're only 10, 12, 13 percent of the population here. I'm talking about African-Americans. And we mm-hmm. can't get it done with a coalition of non-whites. In my opinion, mm-hmm. that's the wrong way to go. And even I though I might not sign off on the entire policy agenda of the left wing of the Democratic Socialists of America or whatever, I will sign off on the in on the Adolf Reed articulated in, uh, impulse to define the issues in such a way that we can bring the interest of people across racial lines into into alignment with one another. <clears throat> For many people, the Pledge of Allegiance or the Star Spangled Banner or Abraham Lincoln or, or uh, FDR or whatever, we're going to take down George Washington style. For many people, that's gratuitously offensive. Uh, and it, it, it gives a wide opening to the Sean Hannity's of the world who no longer wants to look at the NFL. He says, Saturday is my football day. He's going to watch college football, not pro football. And of course, he's Sean Hannity, whatever. But there are millions, <laughs> tens of millions of people that are influenced by that kind of thing. We need those people uh, on the side of a political program aimed at uh, effectively addressing the most serious problems confronting the African-American community. Uh, so so that's, I mean, and there are going to be some issues, if I keep talking, I'll get myself in the trouble, but there are going to be some issues like immigration, where the right want to put, build a wall on the border, mm-hmm. where the experience of a dispossessed people who have come fitfully into some semblance of equal citizenship, that's African-Americans, militates in favor of sympathy for those who seek uh, refuge. Uh, on the other hand, where uh, the uh, sort of economic facts on the ground might actually say that there's some competition or some trade-off between the interests of these various parties. 
um, let me not be cryptic. It's not obviously uh, the case that the interest of an unskilled, uh, lower working class, uh, African-American, native born person, whatever their color, is advanced by relatively uh, liberal immigration policies, bringing large numbers of low skilled yeah. people in and so forth, even if they're people of color. So, so I, there are going to be arguments. They're going to be. They're going to. I'm not saying that whites and blacks across the working class are going to agree about everything, but but the gratuitous offense given to the uh, country loving sentiments of of many of our fellow citizens by the indulgence, as I see it, of ideas that are are really uh, the privilege of the uh, of the uh, ideological elites amongst African Americans is the thing I'm objecting to. Yeah, I mean, I I. I, I ping pong all over the all over the place. On some level, I I agree with the impulse most certainly to want to frame issues in a way that minimizes backlash and maximizes political effect. So it is true, for instance, that my preference is to kind of emphasize the extent to which Black Americans are in some ways you know, essentially American in a way that other groups with more recent immigrant history can't even really lay claim to, right? Um, I often joke when I'm in a car full of kind of mixed race friends that more likely than not, my family has been in this country longer than theirs is, theirs has, right? And, you know, there's this, whatever you might feel about the 4th of July, there is a group, there is a, some subgroup of Black people that understands the history of Memorial Day as a day where I believe, you know, formerly enslaved Black people, or, or maybe currently enslaved, I, can't, I guess formerly enslaved Black people it would be, um, uh, buried white soldiers that had been left on the battlefield. And, and this was kind of the beginning of it all. And so, you know, talking about the fact that black people built the White House, not as a way to say just that America is bad and had slavery, but that it would not be what it is today without us. And that it's a little bit of a tricky tightrope because there are people who at any mention of any historical inequity will balk. And even if you are trying to frame it in a way that is, in, in fact, you know, expressing some pride at how integral you were to Americans, America's being. And then you have the Colin Kaepernick example where he, in fact, was endeavoring to do something not hostile to the flag or to patriotism by ma making a respectful gesture and kneeling as opposed to turning his back or staying seated, et cetera. And people who have a bad faith approach to these issues, who are just ideologically disinclined, are going to frame it negatively no matter what you do, which begs the question, like, why, why should we even be trying? But regardless of where you kind of come down on that in your, your personal life, I'm curious why you were driven to you know, write this particular piece, which seems in, its, in the historical examples it kind of draws upon does tiptoe, I'm not going to say it's not jingoistic in the least, it does not, but it does tiptoe into this kind of realm of American exceptionalism, right? Where we're talking about, you know, America defended the free world in World War II, you know, and, and against the horror of the Soviet Union. You know, I mean, the Soviet Union lost what, like 27 million people in World War II defending, you know, if we're going to say some place is exceptional for defending us against the Nazis, it's hard to say that the Soviet Union isn't at the top, <laughs> at the top of that exceptionality list, right? So what, what exactly, what do you hope that people get out of a piece like this? Okay, so I'm pushing against the zeitgeist, okay, 1619 Project and so forth. And let me say this about uh, the 1619 Project, which is sitting there as a as something that should be addressed directly because it's relevant. Mm. And maybe I'm reacting to a certain degree to the mm. public uh, conversation that the 1619 Project engendered. I was deeply moved by Nicole Hannah-Jones recounting her father's patriotism and her own reckoning with it, her, her father's love of country and her own confusion about how could he have those sentiments and then her recognition that there was something deeper going on. Right. For people who haven't maybe read her essay, there's a she opens the whole collection of essays with a story about how her father really, um, you know, always hung an American flag on their front stoop. Is that right? Yes. And how important that was to him. Uh, and it, it would be overly simplistic in the extreme to dismiss her effort and the project's effort to recenter the narrative about American history on the introduction of chattel slavery in the colonies from uh, the uh, 
spirit of 1776, the revolution and the Declaration of Independence and so on, it would be, I think, uh, uncharitable and, and uh, also misleading to be dismissive of that, to take a kind of black and white view of that. You don't love the country if you want to move the center of our discussion to slavery. On the other hand, I, I think this is the United States of America, and this is just Glenn Lowry's opinion, and it's not because I'm black, and I could be wrong about it, but it's my view, is an exceptional nation in the, in the history of, of uh, uh, you know, democratic politics. I think the defeat of the Soviet Union in the Cold War, and I grant the point, I grant the point the U.S. didn't defeat the Nazis and the Allies didn't defeat the um, uh, the Axis powers in the Second World War without the uh, assistance of the Soviet Union, without the vital role that was played by the Red Army in beating Hitler on the Eastern Front. I, I, I grant, that, grant that point. But I think that as between leader of the free world, uh, beacon of hope for democracy and so forth, freedom and those ideals not always lived up to, often not lived up to imperf uh, perfectly, and with the imperialism and blood on our hands to boot, as between that on the one hand, and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics on the other, I don't think it's close. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear, tear down that wall is what I have to say. Uh, the liberation of the uh, Eastern European uh, countries, uh, uh, you know, the Hungaries and the Czech Republics and all of that uh, from the uh, domination. Of, I, I mean, I think that's an advance for humankind. I think having the Soviet Union's influence more uh, widely felt throughout the Western Hemisphere and Central America and so forth as the Cuban Revolution would have had it would have been bad for the people of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, you know, I think liberal democracy and uh, uh, capitalism with a, with, a, uh, with a heart and a face of, of a social welfare state uh, is, is the right way to go. So I think that, that those were battles that were actually worth fighting and winning. And I think the U.S. role in world history to that effect wants to be celebrated uh, realistically, not... Uh, reflexively, not religiously, critically, but nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, we're just at a, we just have a political difference there. I would say that capitalism, you know, with a smiling, I'm sorry, I forget the words you, act, you use, I don't want to misrepresent you, but kind of a happy <laughs> capitalism or benevolent capitalism or what have you, there are a lot of people that would argue the, the happy face part, the superficial veneer is exactly why it's so insidious. And there are plenty of people who would dispute with you the pros and cons of, you know, life before and after the fall of the Soviet Union. And that's not really my area of expertise. But in this country, I, what you're saying, it, I can't help but feel like it's very much an adoption of what we kind of on the left and in the context of this podcast see as the neoliberal project, wherein certain superficial gains, whether it's Barack Obama as being a black president of the United States, whether it's the existence of black billionaires, um, ultimately serve the purpose of disguising exactly how insidious the gross racial and economic disparities that persist under capitalism really are. And when we talk about the 1619 Project, and I want to be very clear, I have some history of personal animus with Nicole Hannah Jones and have no interest in defending her her particular approach to the world, I'm which is sorry. also devoid of a, of a class analysis. However, the broader project of teaching people about history and not shying away from the very ugly aspects of American history or pretending in some ways that America is something that it's not, that it is exceptional for having won World War II when it lost I mean, every life is, you know, sacred, and I don't mean to devalue deaths from anyone in this context, but, you know, lost fewer than 300,000 people compared to the Soviet Union's 27 million. When we're talking about, you know, you mentioned, you know, America's achievement of having ended slavery. Well, most countries didn't have chattel slavery. Whatever you want to say about a history of slavery, slavery in a very different historical context where people weren't sold away from their families, there were opportunities to leave indenturehood and all of that sort of thing. Not to mention that even here in the Western Hemisphere, Haiti liberated itself, the people of Haiti liberated themselves 60 plus years before the American Civil War. And America, in the interim, did everything it could to thwart that effort 
um, and wouldn't even recognize Haiti's independence till after its own civil war had started, perhaps faced, confronted with the hypocrisy of what was going on, right? So I, I would say that the danger is that you can have a, a less critical, a more sanguine view of capitalism if you aren't willing to engage in the ugly parts of American history. And that's exactly why the people who are opposing critical race theory now are working so hard to keep that history out of school. It's not about critical race theory, um, which most people don't even know what that means, as my colleague at Current Affairs has recently written a really, I think, excellent article about. But it is important to pay attention to these anti-CRT people because their project is in fact aimed at keeping the kind of history that leads people to these inexorable conclusions about how unfair this country is from ever learning those foundational facts. And when I read in your piece, you know, one of the things that you point to is, you know, we've had progress. When I was growing up, you say the uh, the typical, or maybe not when you were growing up, sorry, I don't mean to well, date you. But, yeah, within my but lifetime. Within your lifetime, the typical... Um, median family income of blacks relative to whites was about 50%, you say. Well, I did a quick Google. Black median income is $30,000 a year now. It's $78,000 overall, right? So it's not that I want to dispute that there's been some progress. Absolutely, there has been. I'm not one of those. I, and I've argued with those people on the show in other episodes. But the fact of there being progress, the fact of maybe some communities having some less than desirable culture phenomena, even if I were to grant that, doesn't change the overwhelming influence of these enormous historical, political, legal barriers. And ultimately, whether or not this is your project, and I don't think it is, the right as a whole leverages these alternative explanations as a way not to have to disrupt this capitalist enterprise that funnels all of this wealth and labor coming from communities like ours into the greatest wealth inequality that this country has ever seen since the Gilded, since the Gilded Age. Okay. I mean, you're right that our politics differ. <laughs> um, and you're also, you're also right that uh, cheerleading of the American uh, narrative and, and this kind of uh, flag-waving stuff can be a cover for avoiding uh, reform and avoiding critique. And uh, maybe that I engage in a little bit of that in my effort to push back against the uh, left uh, race, uh, anti-racist, uh, yeah, I say, no, America's not as bad as you say it is. Uh, and for people who think there's nothing wrong with America, they say, oh, Glenn, you're my friend. Exactly. So I have, I have to take that, I have to take that seriously, but I am a neoliberal and I do think that socialism would be a disaster if, if brought to, <clears throat> I mean, we have to argue about what we mean by socialism. I'm the old school Marxist, you know, this is the ownership of the means of production by the state. This is getting rid of private well, property, at least private property that in, in large quantities that, you know, massive wealth and whatnot. Uh, I think that markets, the pursuit of profit, the accumulation of wealth um, is the foundation of our prosperity. Um, I, I think that the reason that we're vastly richer than our great grandparents would ever have dreamt, I talk about American society as a whole, is largely because of the economic dynamics of capitalism. And I think that the impulse to have these decisions about what technologies get implemented, what products get sold, what how they're priced and uh, uh, distributed, uh, and so forth, have those decisions made by central political authority. I, I think the history of the 20th century shows that <clears throat> over and over and over again, not to have succeeded. So, well, I think, yes. So, for one, I think that the, the emphasis, <coughs> and I don't speak for all socialists. <laughs> I'm um, sorry, I think the say that again. Is, I coughed and I didn't hear you. Oh, I said I, I certainly don't speak for all socialists, uh, but the the emphasis is on worker ownership, not necessarily state ownership, although there's certainly some areas where I think folks would agree that state ownership is uh, both historically recommended and beneficial going forward. So, for example, the example of public utilities in um, the Tennessee Valley Authority is one, right, where ownership of energy companies, it, you know, the production of energy was able to not just efficiently provide it, but to rehabilitate an entire part of the country that wasn't deemed to be basically worth invested in by 
private companies. And there's a whole lot of folks who could sit around and tell you about the anti-competitive nature of uh, uh, the anti-competitive kind of realities that are failing antitrust laws and regulations have wrought and how, you know, capitalism isn't even as competitive as people are pretending that it is. There's what, four companies that own every eyeglass company in the mall, you know, all, all the statistics about how there's like th three snack companies in the whole country, all of this stuff is produced by the same people with only the veneer of choice, et cetera, et cetera. But the main, the main focus is on worker ownership because of the observation that despite productivity only increasing, sometimes in dramatic fashion over the years, the share of those profits that goes to laborers has gotten less and less and less. And the income gap has grown extremely broad such that I believe it's 27 people own more wealth um, than the bottom. The stat during the campaign was three, three people own more wealth than the bottom half of Americans. It's gotten worse in some ways, but I don't have the numbers to bring off my tongue anymore because I no longer work for a political campaign. Um, but the point of the matter is that is the emphasis, trying to make sure that the people who actually do the work get the benefits of the labor. As an economist, I wonder what you make of the ways in which our system has not been to the benefit of the laboring classes, even to, even to the extent that it was earlier in American history. Uh, there, there are a lot of rents that we would say the economists lying around. There are a lot of opportunities for extra competitive gain that are not taken care of by normal market forces. There's natural monopoly. There's uh, the, the kind of thing that you see in tech world now where you get network monopoly if you know everybody wants to be on the same platform or wants to be able to interface with other people. So if you get out ahead a little bit, you end up being able to stifle your competition. Uh, there's a lot of financial shenanigans that goes on. Uh, I'm not an expert on all of this, but I'm certainly prepared to uh, endorse the idea that cowboy capitalism is very bad. Capitalism without regulation, capitalism without government efforts to uh, keep, keep the competitors in line. Uh, but I don't know enough about worker ownership to be uh, dismissive, and I, I won't be. Uh, and I can remember from way back in the 70s when I was in graduate school, there was a lot more talk about worker ownership uh, in the economics profession than there is now. Um, I, I don't know what the uh, potential for that is across uh, uh, you know, the various different kinds of industries that we have. There's a lot of you know, churning that goes on and so on. So I, I, I want to bracket in my reaction to worker ownership and say that perhaps that is something that can give workers more control. I, I think also organized labor is a counterweight to the influence of organized capital. And uh, people complaining about Jeff Bezos not giving bathroom breaks to the uh, warehouse workers for Amazon, uh, that's only because those workers don't have enough power to be able to insist on bathroom breaks and other similar kinds of things. They are entitled to organize themselves, and the efforts to keep them from being able to do so uh, is something that the labor law shouldn't shouldn't tolerate. I'm a, I could turn the question around on you. Tell me about the socialist society. I mean, anywhere on the planet that you think is do, is getting this right. Well, I mean, I could throw that right back at you and say, tell me about the capitalist society anywhere in this country <laughs> that you think is doing this right. I mean, we live. Look, well, look. You mentioned earlier, you know, Gorbachev turned on that wall, the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, we learned in our history classes, this wasn't like cloak and dagger. We're, we're, told, we're taught American exceptionalism. We're taught about the domino effect. We're indoctrinated with the idea that the spread of socialism and communism is bad for people uh, without any critical analysis of capitalism. And we are we're asked to celebrate and kind of champion America's role in ensuring the failure of every non-capitalist country in the history of the world. We've had an embargo. I mean, you want to bring up Cuba. Let's talk about our embargoes. Let's talk about Venezuela and the way that we have financially squeezed these companies, these countries, and prohibited them from actually engaging in any kind of free trade for decades. You know, again, let's come back to Haiti. We Our fingerprints are on everything. And so the idea that you can kind of assess in a vacuum the, su the success or relative ability to generate wealth of some of these countries, um, I think is a little, I think is a lot unfair. But I can also point to social democratic countries. And look, I what I personally would like to happen ideologically is one thing. What I choose to fight for politically in this moment, because it feels like what the world can bear, is another. 
And in the context of at least this last political cycle, um, you would just have to point to countries like Scandinavia or Canada to get the level of reform that would enormously bring this country up to date and impact millions of lives in a substantial way. So it's not about reinventing the wheel when we talk about, let's say, universal health care. It's not about reinventing the wheel to talk about a kind of a universal housing guarantee. Even countries like Singapore, which are very capitalistic for different reasons, have cer a certain level of housing guarantees that we don't have here. Even very poor countries um, have like bad universal health care. It's not offering you very much, but you know, you'll get a Rwanda that has something on the books at least that hopes to offer basic health care support to its citizens. But those, and, you know, Scandinavia and Canada are not socialist countries. They're capitalist countries with a robust social safety net and with a sense of solidarity amongst their people that makes them willing to tax themselves so as to provide a greater degree of services than we're willing to do in this country. Absolutely. And I hope that we get there and so we can have a more robust conversation about the next step of what a socialist, what, how much a truly socialist country could get done. <laughs> but before, I, I've kept you for a very long time and I really appreciate how gracious you've been in the course of this conversation. This has been a real, a real delight. If I could just ask you one, okay. one question before we leave. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, Did I was I just going to say I appreciate you going easy on me, Brianna, because <laughs> my wife is not going to be that kind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about your your wife, if you may, if I may. Yes, you of mentioned course. you mentioned that she is a Bernie supporter, and I had the pleasure of meeting her briefly uh, yeah. before we started recording today. I, I'm I'm curious how that works for you. How can you give us a little insight into this this um, mixed political household dynamic? Well, I, I think we've I think we've learned from each other. Well, first of all, it's a spiritual challenge. At, uh, I don't mean religious. I, I mean, I'm getting angry. I know that's unhealthy. Let me pause <laughs> for a minute before I speak and measure my words. Mm. Or that would just be picky if I said that. Let me resist the temptation to, you know, score a point here and whatever, whatever. <laughs> uh, can I just shut up and listen for a minute? I mean, stuff like that. Mm. Uh, it's been a learning opportunity because, uh, for example, I've gotten introduced to you and uh, your work through <laughs> through my lovely wife. Oh, is your wife the reason why you said yes to this interview? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of the reason why. But but it's a real it's a real challenge uh, for us, and so and it, it's a check on me. I'll say that because I'm the guy with the microphone. I'm the one that has a podcast. I'm the one who's out there. Uh, she's a very intelligent and very well informed woman, but she's not a public person. And I and and when I get feedback from Lawan uh, about you know I heard your uh, interview with so and so and I was appalled. Mm -hmm. It gives me pause. I mean it's a it's a kind of oh really gosh maybe I better take a good look at what I'm saying. Maybe mm -hmm. I better take a good look at who I'm talking to. Well, if she's got that impression, other people will have that impression as well. So I I, I think I'm learning something. Also. Uh, Bernie Sanders did get the shaft from the Democratic Party in the 2016 and the 2020 election cycles. It's pretty clear that some people are very afraid of the kind of change that he wants to bring. And not all of them are Republicans. Right. So th this is a point worth taking on board. Uh, but it can also be very frustrating because there have been times when, you know, I've wanted her in my corner hmm. and she has out of conscience not been able to come to my corner because she thinks I'm wrong about something. And I just have to accept that, you know, we, we don't agree about everything. And that, uh, as a, a wise person has said to us, uh, you got to decide what you're going to let come between you. Hmm. And are you going to let uh, the, an interpretation of an amendment to the Affordable Care Act come between you and your beloved? <laughs> that would be silly, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard, though, because on some level... Yes, when you frame issues in that way, it does seem like minutia. On the other hand, you can frame it as these kind of big, meaty, ethical issues that go straight to your core values. You know, do you believe that we sh you know, have, should have universal health care at the very least, uh, you know, Obamacare? You know, how, how, what do you think is more important, an interpretation of law or 20 million people's access to at least Obamacare? And I have found some difficulty in managing that line, especially when you when you when you said what you said about sometimes I want her in my corner and out of 
you know, principle, she, she can't. Uh, I have also often found as the person with the microphone, I'm very willing to be like, I don't actually need you to agree with me on this. I'm having these conversations out in the world and getting different sources of validation and pushback. And I truly don't want to have this <laughs> discussion with you. I don't care. And that is interpreted as kind of an indifference that it's, it's, it's its own problem. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> but on the other hand, I can tell you sometimes when my lovely wife and I have agreed to disagree and change the subject, it's been the best thing happen all day because <laughs> otherwise everybody's jaws would be tight for a week and, and <laughs> that's not going to work. Well, from your lips to my future partner's ears, Indeed. Professor Larry, <laughs> thank you so much for taking this time. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank, thank you. you for having me on, Brianna. Is there any, um, would you like to tell our audience about where to find your work and or your podcast? Well, I'm on uh, Substack at glennlowry.substack.com and I have a newsletter and uh, you can link to my podcast there. So, Okay, perfect.